Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Joining us right now is Dr. Binoy Singh, who oversees all cardiac services at Phelps Hospital as well as the practice at Northwell Health Physician Partners Cardiology in Yorktown Heights. That's in Westchester County. And in this new role, he will help develop and expand the cardiovascular services in southern and northern Westchester County. And uh, before this, well, he's been a practicing cardiologist in Yorktown for 20 years, but he also spent the past 10 years as the Associate Chief of Cardiology and Director of Clinical Business Development at Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan, which is also part of Northwell Health. He enhanced their footprint in cardiology, and today the cardiac program is ranked among the top 5% of hospitals in the nation by health grades for overall for overall cardiac service. So, Dr. Binoy Singh, um, welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show today. Hello. Hi. Hi. Good morning, Lisa. How are you? Good morning. Good. So, um, I'm fine. I'm well. You know, it's interesting to me. The first thing I'd like to ask you, Dr. Singh, is could you distinguish for me between a cardiologist and a cardiovascular surgeon? In other words, in your world, is there a very big distinction between those that treat hearts versus those that operate on hearts? Uh, Well, a wonderful question. And uh, first of all, thank you for uh, having me on the show. What a privilege to be able to uh, share uh, with your audience uh, information and insight around uh, cardiovascular health and uh, what an appropriate time to be talking about this topic on the 1st of February, the Heart Month, and yep. with all the Go Red for Women initiatives uh, that are out there. So um, the, a good question. Um, you know, the cardiovascular um, professional, so to speak, um, really is divided up into um, two arenas. Um, there's cardiovascular medicine, um, where... Uh, we have uh, general cardiologists that uh, <clears throat> will um, consult with patients and um, embrace uh, different diagnostic strategies to help them understand etiology of their symptoms um, and uh, develop, based on the data collected, based on uh, be, uh, utilizing diagnostic tools um, on prevention and, and diagnosis and treatment. Um, in the cardiology or cardiovascular medicine world, we have 
I call them the general cardiologists would be like general contractors. And then you have folks that can do um, work on the coronary arteries, the interventional cardiologists okay. and peripheral interventional cardiologists okay. who are proceduralists, but they're not doing surgery. And then you have electricians that work on the electrical aspects of the heart. You have structural heart specialists, heart function specialists, prevention specialists. So there's a, a variety of different subspecialties within the cardiovascular medicine world. And alongside our colleagues who are cardiovascular surgeons, they will be also doing, you know, consultative work, but they use surgical techniques uh, to help um, treat uh, different forms of cardiovascular disease. So we have our surgical subspecialists um, as well as our general cardiologists who are supported by a number of subspecialties within the cardiovascular medicine world. You know, Dr. Singh, this became very real to, to me. My mom had a stroke uh, around Thanksgiving Day, and uh, almost immediately afterwards, the, and it happened to have been the second stroke in six months, which was relevant because the first one took away the sight in one eye, which never came back, but it was misdiagnosed. We were told it wasn't a stroke. Anyway, so six mm. months later when she had another stroke, one where she fell down and you know her left side went limp, they said, oh, we think the one in April, different doctor, said we think the one in April definitely was a stroke. It wasn't just an inflammation of the optic nerve. So I'm learning about all this. And then within a day of getting, this was down in Boca Regional, and then within a day of getting the, you know, the diagnosis of stroke, which thankfully, in terms of stroke, could have been a lot worse, right? Because it didn't affect her speech or cognition, but it affected her left side. She's still in rehab, but, but she's, she's doing very, very well. But the point is that um, they said that one of her coronary carotid arteries was 70% blocked, and they wanted to clean it out. And they felt that she was well enough to withstand it, and it was a good idea to do it because it would prevent further stuff from breaking away and going back up to the brain, and we didn't want any more strokes. So she did that four days after the stroke. She did that on the Monday after the Thursday that she was admitted to the hospital. And what I'm asking you about, Dr. Singh, which was interesting to us and a little confusing, was who was supposed to do that? Because they went in through the neck, and it was my impression that it was a vascular guy treating a cardiovascular issue, but not a heart guy. Understood. Understood. Well, first off, um, you know, I'm happy that your mom is in rehab and hopefully continuing to make progress after such, um, such a clinical event. Um, unfortunately, as you know, um, you know, the stroke uh, the incidence of stroke uh, continues to be a major problem uh, amongst many other cardiovascular diseases. Um, and in particular, um, the type of stroke that you've described that your mother experienced, um, where atherosclerosis or plaque either breaks off uh, from inside one of the vessels that carry blood to the brain and uh, ultimately uh, limits the blood supply to a portion of the brain and causes injury, and that's what results in our symptoms um, versus other types of stroke, which might be include things like bleeding in the brain. Right, um, right. But the atherosclerotic-type strokes are, um, you know, unfortunately continuing to be a major issue, and we do have a number of different um, considerations when one has identified that there is a 
plaque, if you will, or a blockage, as is often used uh, in, in describing the narrowing of the vessels that carry blood to the brain. Uh, the approaches, you know, sometimes people use medications to treat um, those types of blockages uh, alone. And then there are um, interventional cardiologists. They're called peripheral interventionalists who may be able to, without doing a surgical um, incision in the neck and opening up the vessel and, quote, unquote, cleaning out the plaque, so to speak, uh, they do so using catheter-based techniques. And then, of course, um, you have vascular surgeons um, who have specific training around how to surgically restore blood supply um, in the carotid arteries in this particular instance, uh, as well as other major arteries in the body, including the aorta and even in the arteries that carry blood to the legs. They, they can vacuum yeah. the aorta, too? That's unbelievable. Can they really? That's incredible. Because <laughs> well, that's what they, they said. They were going to vacuum it out. Yeah. So in the carotid arteries, the technique that is uh, surgically, it's called an end arterectomy. Right. Carotid end arterectomy. Big, and, big word. And big word. Um, yeah. Yep, exactly. And so, you know, they do, in fact, make an incision where they're into the artery, into the neck, into the artery, and then are able to really um, help evacuate plaque or or any debris there that would um, be causing a limitation in blood flow, and then they're able to surgically correct that, and uh, people do fairly well. Uh, that cut was something else, surgical. Dr. Singh. That cut was something else. By the way, it's almost completely shrunk now. I can't believe, and my mom is 88, how well it's healed, but when she came out of that surgery, my father and I, okay, in the vernacular, we plotzed. Okay, we we couldn't we couldn't believe it. It was really something. So, Doctor Singh, the, the only re- the, the yeah. way the yeah. human body really wow. uh, does uh, heal, and with the um, support and and expertise of uh, vascular surgeons who are able to perform these types of procedures, um, it's a true testament to the evolution of uh, medical science, and certainly a, a re of, um, sort of. Uh, affirmation of uh, what the human body is capable of. It's incredible, actually. And I was so thankful at 88 that they felt that she was strong enough to withstand it and that it was worth doing for her quality of life. So, um, so Dr. Singh, let me ask you. I've got a question from a listener here. By the way, 203-333-9422 will take your heart questions. One listener tells me that he, um, he was diagnosed with an irregular heartbeat, and one doctor said that he thought it might be AFib, but ultimately, two doctors told him it wasn't. What's the difference between an irregular heartbeat that's AFib and one that isn't? Uh, well, so, you know, we to provide uh, um, a, a robust answer to a very good question, um, one should recognize that, you know, the heart's this football-shaped muscle that sits in the chest. And... <clears throat> You know, the job, obviously, of the heart muscle is to be a pump. So it fills up with blood, and then it squeezes, and blood is moved to different parts of the body. So when you think about the heart's doing the mechanical work of contracting and relaxing, you'd have to say, well, how is that heart muscle knowing when to do that kind of activity? So, in fact, there is a group of cells and that typically in the normal setting – up in the right upper chamber called the right atrium 
and okay. it's called the sinus node. And these cells will initiate a current of electricity, actually, that propagates cell by cell by cell through the heart muscle, telling the heart when to squeeze and when to relax. And so this current of electricity in the normal setting follows a particular path, if you will, through a group of specialized cells that are supposed to send the message to all the other heart muscle cells as to when to do their work. Alterations in the initiation and propagation of that current can be a manifestation of an electrical disturbance. Okay. Right? And so there may be many types of alterations that would be considered an irregular heartbeat or an electrical abnormality. So there's a lot of different types of electrical abnormalities. One type of electrical abnormality uh, where the group of cells that are typically responsible for originating that current in the right upper chamber, that sinus node that I referred to earlier, sometimes they tend to lose control and the cells that make up the top chambers of the heart, they all try to compete for control, so to speak, at that point, uh, of who's going to be the determiner of how the current will be transmitted through the heart muscle. And in this sort of electrical anarchy, if you will, of the upper chambers of the heart, um, that is a form of an electrical disturbance, and we call that atrial fibrillation. So the, that is a type of irregular heart rhythm. And the other types, if you will, there are many types. They can involve the upper chambers and the lower chambers. But there may be cells in the upper chambers that are typically supposed to only receive a current and propagate it to its neighbor, right? But, in fact, those cells, instead of being receivers and propagators, become initiators of the current based on changes in their electrical threshold. So there may be alterations in the frequency of the normal current by these other cells, and they might result in electrical abnormalities, but it is different or distinctly different from atrial fibrillation. And is there treatment for it? Do you not bother treating it, or do you just, uh, you know, what do you do? You just look at it and watch it? Yeah. And, okay. What do you do? Yeah, so... So in do you, atrial fibrillation, obviously... By the way, do you care? <laughs> is it important? Well, it's yeah, definitely you have to care. Okay. And I think especially if someone is having symptoms related to any electrical disturbances, you want to identify what those disturbances are. And so when we go to a doctor's office and um, part of the evaluation involves getting what's called an electrocardiogram where they... Staff will put on yeah, some, right. little sticky little things yes. on your chest and on your arms which and on is, your legs. Which is different than an EKG, right? It's a little more. It's a well, little the, more. Yeah. So, there, you know, the EKG is a, is a tool that actually is able to measure, if you recall anything from physics way back when, when electrical currents move from one place to another, they create voltage. And these little sticky things on people's chest that either monitor the electrical activity or the electrocardiogram done in an office, these tests are really measuring the voltage generated by that current going through the heart. It's unbelievable, really. And, yeah, and so 
those are the tools that typically help us identify what the electrical abnormality may be. And based on what the findings are, treatment strategies that are appropriate can be initiated. Dr. Singh, you're very technical. It strikes me as I'm listening to you and listening to Dr. Singh, who is the director of cardiology at Phelps Memorial Hospital Division of Northwell, that you, um, in order to be a heart doctor, it sounds like you have to be a physicist, an electrician, a, a mechanic. It's like all of it, right? It's a lot yeah, of different well, disciplines. You know, the, yeah, one, 100% right, Lisa. Um, I think um, the cardiovascular medicine is really... Uh, you know, the cardiovascular system is really one, it's, uh, one system within the body that um, really encompasses quite a number of different um, disciplines, if you will, of um, science that would help us help understand best how the system works to serve the greater good, which is us as human beings. And um, it is interesting that the you know, we even, as I pointed out earlier on, that in the cardiovascular medicine world, we have people that specialize in electrical issues yeah. or structural issues or function issues or artery issues, what I call plumbers. I have a issues. bunch of so, other questions for you. You ready? Sure. got a bunch of other questions. Yes, let's go. All right. Uh, here's a question. My doctor prescribed a statin for me, and I'm 85 years old. Do I have to take a statin? Do I have to start taking a statin at 85 years old? Well, an excellent question, an excellent question. So, you know, obviously answering any questions um, in this format. Um, I know. You can give me all the disclaimers. I know. Listen, I'm a lawyer. Yeah, I'm, I'm with the disclaimer. Of course. <laughs> I get it. I get it. You don't have the patient in front of you. But generally, and the right. reason I ask, you know, I have a bunch of questions for you, but the reason I ask that one is because it's my impression that it takes years for the kind of plaque that you'd be worried about as a result of high cholesterol to appear in the heart. And if somebody has a baseline and they're already pretty good, this, this went into a whole thing about, you know, my cardiovascular, uh, my carotid arteries are clear and blah, blah, blah. But as a prophylactic measure, my doctor wants me to take a statin now. Is that the right thing to do? And I'm curious, yeah, well, that's too. A, yeah. yeah, no, it's an excellent question. And if you, you know, were to quote-unquote, go by the books, you know, the trials that have looked at the importance or efficacy and safety of statins um, in preventing cardiovascular events like stroke and heart attack, um, you know, most of those trials did not include folks that were in their 80s. Right. Um, and so if one were to try to use trial-based data to answer that question, you'd say, well, we really don't necessarily believe that that in the your 80s or in your 90s that you're someone who may or may not benefit from uh, the use of a statin to lower cholesterol and reduce risk for events. So we don't have that information necessarily. And even if you look at the guidelines that are published by <clears throat> governing bodies of practice, um, you know, there are clearly appropriately recognized limitations of what the data would suggest is appropriate. So the indiv to individualize that decision is really the priority of the doctor and the patient involved. If there are, if there is potentially evidence of significant plaque or there's been a history of some cardiovascular events, there may be some value 
um, in utilizing a statin in that patient population. But, um, but again, in those situations, you really have to make that an individualized decision between your provider and the person who's receiving the care. <clears throat> but Doc- by guidelines, you would say that that may not be appropriate. Okay, that's fair. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, we have a bunch of questions for you. Um, I ha- I'm going to start with mine, though. Ready? Um, I have an abnormal EKG for 30 years but it isn't always abnormal. And it says that I have something called a right bundle branch blockage. And my internist said to me, don't worry about it. So I don't. Um, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. And how come sometimes it's on an EKG, but a lot of times it isn't? Well, that's a, an interesting question and uh, definitely not an uncommon uh, finding. So as I had um, discussed a little bit earlier, the Electrocardiogram, again, is a recording, if you will, of the voltage that's generated by the current that travels through the heart, telling the heart when to squeeze and when to relax. And as I said earlier as well, that the current is typically initiated in the top chambers of the heart. And as the top chambers, the cells of the top chambers receive this signal, another group of cells sort of sitting in the middle of the heart called the AV node will propagate this current down two paths to the bottom chambers, the ventricles. The right bundle, which is a cell, a, a series of cells or tissue in the heart that will conduct that current to the right side of the bottom chambers of the heart, and then the left bundle will conduct down to the left side of the heart. And these two tracks, if you will, for this electrical current tell the bottom chambers when to squeeze and when to relax. Okay. Now, in some of us, uh, intermittently, and in some of us more permanently, one of those tracks don't conduct the current consistently, uh. right? So in the right bundle, for example, in your case, you would argue that your right bundle intermittently doesn't conduct, and so they call it a right bundle branch block. Okay. All right, but... So you can say, well, that's not good. Um, But fortunately, the left bundle will conduct the current, and all the cells that are receiving this current through the left bundle will ultimately get that signal to the right-sided cells. (laughs) 
Yeah, so they're covered, so to speak. Okay. Exactly. I mean, he told exactly. me not to worry about it. I think I had that finding when I was 29 years old. My blood pressure is average, about 100 over 70, 100 over 60. They have to look for it. So I'm good. I mean, I'm fine. I'm good. I, I don't adversely yeah. worry about it, but I, I, I do wonder because, you know, half the time it's not even there, but sometimes it's there. So it's a weird thing. Okay. Yeah. So your right bundle is a little finicky. A little finicky. It's a finicky bundle. Yep. I can do that. Okay. Yes. Um, yep. And by the way, it's a good segue to the fact that, you know, it is Go Red Month. And one of the, um, one of the things that creeps up on women's health uh, is heart damage and heart attacks because I don't know that women are educated enough in general about what some of the symptoms are of poor heart health that might be different than those for men. So you want to tell us a little bit about that generally? Are there things that women should be more conscious of in their bodies that are different than men's bodies? Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. Lisa, again, uh, uh, an extraordinary um, effort has been made by Northwell Health and the Cass Institute for Women's Health, and even within our region, across the health system and in our region, um, we have significant leaders and a, that have a major focus on promoting uh, awareness around um, cardiovascular symptoms and risk factors in women and the manifestation of cardiovascular disease in women uh, and how that might be different. Yeah, um, than but Dr. Singh, I, I need you to get quickly because we have people holding that want to talk yep. to you. So just real quick, if Not you could just problem. tell me one so thing. The, because we're running out of time. That, you know, yeah. Not a problem. So we talk about chest pain, shortness of breath. In women, you have to be mindful that sometimes symptoms aren't as prominent or as recognizable. So things like fatigue may oh, be a, a marker. Change in endurance ah. uh, uh, may be a marker, uh, whereas um, those things that go unrecognized or explained, so to speak, or by, hey, you know, I just celebrated another birthday and that's why I'm tired or I see. You know, I'm a little more winded, but, you know, it might be because I didn't exercise. Well, those may be Related early manifestations. Okay. Exactly. Let's exactly. go to Ebby from Trumbull. Ebby, you're on the air with Dr. Singh. Quickly, we're running out of time. What is your question for the doctor? Yes. I was just told I had an enlarged heart. Is that dangerous? Uh, so, I mean, uh, thank you for your question, and the answer is uh, going to be a little bit complicated. But, yes, sometimes the enlarge- enlargement of the heart um, can be due to a number of different things. So typically our heart muscle t- uh, you know, is a certain size, um, and different chambers may be enlarged, uh, and that could be related to a number of different causes. Um, the question as to the enlargement and how well the heart is pumping will also be important to know um, whether or not uh, it warrants additional investigation and treatments that would help improve the size of the heart muscle. So the, it can be an issue, and you definitely need to continue to pursue uh, understanding why somebody has uh, decided to say that your heart is enlarged. What are some of the common reasons why a heart might be larger than it should be? Well, some people who have long-standing high blood pressure may develop enlargement of the heart muscle. Some people may have um, 
irregular heart rhythms that ultimately can lead to enlargement of the heart. Um, there are um, other uh, disease states that can lead to changes in heart muscle function and the heart's ability to compensate for those conditions will change the geometry of the heart muscle. Interesting. When we look at a picture of the heart, it typically looks like a football. And when you start to think about it looking like a basketball, you better figure out why. Interesting. Can you, can you uh, shrink it back down to where it should be? Uh, well, uh, absolutely. Um, there are ongoing uh, uh, developments and, and treatment strategies uh, that help improve heart function and heart geometry, um, medications. Uh, if you identify the cause for any change in the geometry of the heart muscle, you, are, you can actually reverse, you know, fix the cause and then see reversal in the size and shape of the heart muscle. So, yes, it is definitely possible to be treated and corrected. Let me ask you one more question because then we're going to run out of time. I'm going to ask this for you, Abby. Um, what, what is the discipline, what is the correct specialty that Abby should be seeking out when she has been given this diagnosis? Right. So when, you know, a, a general cardiologist uh, may be helpful in identifying the cause, but the person or individual, the expertise would be with people have called them the quote-unquote heart failure experts, but I typically would say that they're heart function experts. So people that specialize in what's called cardiomyopathy or heart function would be appropriate. Mm -hmm. Are you you listening, Abby? Are you listening? Thank you. That's what I want you to know. Go ahead. Share the contact, doctor. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say that I'm happy to share my contact with you. Um, If you'd like, you can call 914-721-8900, and we can definitely be able to help you connect with the proper specialist that would be helpful to you. That's what you want. You want to get the right specialist. Now you've got the general diagnosis. Now you've got to zoom in. Okay, Abby? You've got to zoom in. Wonderful. All right. Thank you for calling. So the doctor's number, 914-721-8900, to reach him at Northwell Health. I want to thank you, Dr. Singh, for coming on today. This has been incredibly informative. You stay well. Lisa, thank you. Privilege. Be well. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at Lisa at LisaWexler.com. 